You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelius and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I enjoy everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Thanks, Victoria. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah? No? There's always one, isn't there, Jordan? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just pray that as we look at uh, the next bit of 2 Timothy that you would be with us. I pray that you'd help to open our hearts to see what you are teaching us through this letter from Paul to his disciple Timothy. I pray that you'd be with me. Help me to clearly explain your word. We ask for this in your name. Amen. Uh, so just a reminder, this is the second part of a five-part series in 2 Timothy. And just a warning for those who weren't here last Sunday or maybe need a bit of reminder that I originally gave this series in February this year to a whole big group of Bible translators who are all into Greek and linguistics and everything. So it was originally designed without an audience in mind. I have adapted it, but there will be some technical things in the message some of you will love that stuff and some of you might not. So just if you don't like it, just sort of wait until you get to a bit that you do like. <laughs> but I've left it in because I know some people do like it. And so anyway, last Sunday we looked at most of the first part of the uh, first chapter of 2 Timothy. And who can remember anything that we talked about then? This is always a big test for the preacher if anyone actually remembered anything. So, shame. Tell me more. Sorry? Suffer for the honour of God. To get God's honour? Yep. Anything else? Yes? Peter? 
Okay, so Paul uses a motion in his talking to Timothy. That's right. Can anyone remember the technical word for that? Pathos, yes, or pathos if you want to say it the Greek way. Yeah, good. Anything else? You're doing well. Some of you could come up here and do the sermon instead. So, uh, as, as a couple of you have mentioned, probably the strongest thing we saw was the honour and shame issue. And so we saw how that was a big thing for Timothy. It seems as though Timothy might be faltering a bit, not enough to lose his faith, but just not being as committed to preaching the good news as he should be. Has anyone here felt that way too at some time in their life? No, I have. I know I have. He also seems to be in danger of being ashamed of Paul, his discipler. And we also looked at how the three proofs of rhetorical argument are used. Can anyone remember them? If you can read up on the screen, it might help. <laughs> so what's ethos? Ethos is credibility. Who's saying it? Logos is what you say, the content. And sometimes that's really all we focus on. But there's those other two as well. And the third one being pathos, yep, or emotional appeal. So ethos, the credibility of the speaker, Paul reminded us that he wasn't just anybody. He was chosen by God. And he was chosen by God to be God's apostle or messenger. We looked at the logical argument, logos, and then the pathos, which is the emotional appeal and we saw various ways in which this was strong, particularly in the early part of the letter where Paul is setting the scene with, um, you know, setting up the letter. Our passage today continues some of those themes and it also introduces some more. So I hope you're okay with a few more things. Now remember last Sunday we looked at the role of examples. So we saw three examples from last Sunday. Can anyone remember who they were? Sorry? His grandma, yep. His mother and Paul. Yes, that's right. So Paul used himself as an example. And that's a good point for us to remember that when we are discipling and teaching people, people look to us as an example. So now in our last few verses of chapter 1, Paul introduces three more examples with those really hard to pronounce names. Uh, there are two negative ones. That is people not to follow. Phygelus and Hermogenes, and then one positive one, which is Onesiphorus. And we read about that in verses 15 to 17, where Paul writes, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Now, back in those days, there was a Latin proverb. Does anyone know Latin? Good. So, um, I don't. So, can you, are you brave enough to actually say that properly? Thank you. Verba docent exemplar trahun. So I've just tried to copy off David there. And that means, David? Words teach, Yes. Words teach, examples captivate. 
In other words, if you really want to get your point across, you don't just teach the facts. I mean, you can learn from them, but they often seem dry. But what really helps when you're teaching is to give an example. An example of how things are done. And that's a common teaching practice that we use. In these verses, we see that Paul now takes his emotive appeal one step further by using real-life examples of betrayal and support. People who have betrayed him and one person who has supported him. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they deserted, they rejected Paul. And later on in this letter, we'll see other people who deserted and even opposed Paul. So they're negative examples. But in contrast to them, we see Onesiphorus. Not only did Onesiphorus encourage Paul and cheer him up, but when he was in Rome, he actively looked out for Paul, searched for him. Even though in Roman culture, Paul's situation in prison was a shameful place to be, Onesiphorus wasn't worried about that, and he spared no effort looking for him until he found him. And Paul tells Timothy directly this in verse 16, towards the end of verse 16, he, that's Anesiphorus, hard to say, isn't it? Anesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. The choice is now in Timothy's hands. He's been given the negative examples of Phygelus and Hermogenes, the ones who deserted Paul, and he's given the positive example of Anesiphorus, who's stuck by Paul's side, even in a situation that in Roman culture would normally be considered shameful. Now, towards the end of the letter, in the last chapter, in verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, Paul makes this request of Timothy in some of his closing remarks. He says, Do your best to come to me quickly. The question is, will Timothy heed Paul's request? Will he travel all that distance and come and see Paul in prison? And already, right back here in chapter 1, Paul gives Timothy the example of, of Onesiphorus, who did come, who did look out for Paul, and who helped Paul. And throughout chapter 1, in what we looked at last Sunday and what we're looking at so far today, Paul has made clear that as he identifies with Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, that Paul has learned God's values of true honour and true shame. Identifying with Jesus might be shameful in this world's eyes. Who's ever felt shame because of standing up for Jesus, being shamed by people? I have. Identifying with Jesus might be shameful in the world's eyes, but it has great honour in God's eyes. And the question is, will Timothy see this too, and will he be encouraged to continue suffering for the sake of the good news? Now Paul, of course, hopes and believes that Timothy will. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, Paul tells Timothy to teach others what he himself has been taught. And that's a very important verse, and I'd like to talk about that more, but it's so important that I'm going to skip over it now and come back to it at the end of the talk. So let's now skip ahead to verses 3 to 7. Who's seen that interesting word up on the screen there? Can anyone pronounce that? Give it a go. 
Enthymemes. Who's ever heard of an enthymeme? Come on. There must be at least one person. You've heard of them now. From verse 3 to 7, we have a series of what are called enthymemes. We have three of them. Now, don't be scared by the word enthymeme. It really is just a fancy Greek-derived word, which means an argument that's drawn from common sense. So we could say a common sense saying, or it's something that comes from the shared experiences of the speaker and the audience, so like a common theme that they both know about. But one of the interesting things about an enthymeme is often the final conclusion is not actually given. The actual point of the saying is not spelled out. Because the audience, which is us, is supposed to work that out for yourself. And when you have to think, think something out for yourself, it means that you remember it better. And that's just what we see here with these three enthymemes, or we might say unfinished sayings. And they're followed by first seven. At the end of the three enthymemes, Paul's probably realising that maybe not everyone's catching on. And he says, reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you insight into it all. And I thought about this phrase and I had a look at the Greek and I thought another way of translating the Greek into colloquial Aussie English might be this. Think about what I've just said. The Lord will help you to figure it all out. In other words, Paul doesn't spell everything out for Timothy. But he tells him to think about these sayings. And with the Lord's help, he needs to figure out the meaning for himself. Or the Lord will help him to figure it out. So let's now have a look at these three enthymemes. Each of them draw from common examples of the time. And actually, I think when we look at the three of them, we can apply each of them to our own examples of our time as well. They're not really that foreign, the examples. So the first enthymeme is in verses 3 to 4. And this is the example of the soldier. And it says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Now in this enthymeme, or common saying, Paul is actually explicit about the conclusion. He does actually give the conclusion in the first one. We can see three parts to this saying. The first one is... The good soldiers want to please their commanding officer. The second one is that in order to please a commanding officer, the soldier has to suffer by not getting involved in civilian affairs. I mean, when you watch the news and you see the war going on in Ukraine, you can see that, that people are not living normal lives. They're going under a lot of suffering in order to achieve their goal. And in the third one... It says, in the same way, if you want to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ, you must suffer. So that's actually stated first. You can see that in the first line. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So that's the actual point and stated in this one. But in the other two enthymemes, the conclusion is unstated and we're supposed to figure it out. The second one, the athlete who's into athletics here, sports, stuff like that. Yep, over there in the green part of the section. <laughs> yep, Jordan. But I know a few of you are, so maybe you can relate to this one. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does... Sorry, I'll start that again. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete 
does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. So in this enthymeme or saying, the first point is an athletic contest has rules. And the second one is an athlete must compete according to the rules if he wants to win the race. Otherwise they are disqualified. And we see that in the Olympics, don't we? And then that's it. Did you notice the conclusion's not actually there? The point's actually not there? It's a nice story about athletes. What's that got to do with us who are not athletes? The audience, that's Timothy, and us who are the readers of our translations, are then supposed to figure out the next step, which of course is, if you want to win or finish God's race, you must do what? Follow God's rules. Notice how that's not explicitly stated, but it's certainly implied. You all got it. And it's the same with the next one. This is about farming. Who's a farmer? Nobody? All right. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. In this one, the first point is that a harvest of crops requires hard work. The second one is farmers work hard. Why? So they can get a harvest and be the first to get a share of the crops. And then Timothy and us are supposed to work out the rest, which is, what do you think? Work hard for for the gospel. Why? So you can share in the reward. That's right. Those who serve God must work hard and they will receive the harvest of getting God's approval. So it's not explicitly stated. You have to think about it, but it's there. It's certainly strongly implied. And we need to think carefully about these sayings as we read them. The whole point of these sayings, or enthymemes, or incomplete sayings, is that by not supplying all the information, the main point, it forces us to think. It forces us to work it out for ourselves, with the Lord's help, of course. But by engaging our minds in this way, then it helps us to remember the lesson better and then apply it to our lives. Just as Paul says in verse 7, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Or in Aussie English, think about what I've just said. The Lord will help you figure it all out. Now as he ponders on these sayings, Paul hopes that Timothy, and I guess hopes us, will realise that if we wish to share in the rewards that Jesus offers, we must be willing to share in the hard work and the sufferings that go with that. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth going through all the suffering of these hard and difficult times because we follow Jesus? In verse 8, Paul reminds Timothy, and he reminds us, that it definitely is worth it. Because he says... Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Raised from the dead. Don't we all need reminding sometimes of this wonderful good news? That Jesus, who is the Messiah, which means God's chosen anointed one, that's what the word Christ means, 
He is a one that is descended from David. That means he's come through all the promises that God's given in the Old Testament. And he has been raised from the dead, like we saw on that clip that the kids are looking at in the Sunday school. He has been raised from the dead. What do I hear? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is that exciting? Yes. Yes. Is that exciting? Thank you. That sounds more exciting. That is the gospel. That's the good news which Paul preaches. But preaching this wonderful news has a consequence that is hard, painful, and, in our culture, shameful. Verses 8 to 9. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. That is, the very reason that Paul is suffering, the very reason he is put in jail like a shameful criminal is because he preaches and teaches the good news of Jesus' resurrection. But even in the midst of his suffering, Paul can declare that even if he is in jail, God's word is not in jail. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. We may suffer. We may be dishonoured. Maybe we can be taken to court because of our beliefs. In some countries, Christians can actually be jailed and chained up. But God's word cannot be chained. God's word cannot be jailed. It will go out and it will do its work. Which is why in verse 10 Paul tells us, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Yes, Paul was willing to go through these hardships. He was willing to put up with all these difficult and dishonourable things. Why? So that others can be saved through Jesus. What Paul is telling Timothy and what God is telling us is that this suffering, this pain, this dishonour is for a purpose. It's for a reason. The suffering and the shame are worth it because the stakes are so high. What Paul is doing here from a sociological point of view is he is playing off the virtue of honour against the virtue of courage. One of the ancient Latin rhetorical handbooks that goes back to the first century BC, so just a little bit before the time of Paul, is called Rhetorica ad and I'm sure David can fix up my pronunciation of the Latin there. And that says, in English translation, courage is the reaching for great things and contempt for what is mean, also the endurance of hardship in expectation of a prophet. Not the easiest translation to understand, but what that means is that courage is putting up with hardship in order to get something worthwhile. To get something of great profit. Paul is urging Timothy to be courageous. And through this book of 2 Timothy, God is urging us to do the same. To be courageous 
no matter the hardship, no matter the shame, because there is a great prophet. And that great prophet is? Jesus. But more specifically, it is to preach the good news so that other people can hear and receive salvation through Jesus the Messiah. They won't do that. They won't hear it unless we are willing to suffer and preach the gospel to them. Now in our final verses in our passage today, Paul quotes a saying. Let's read it, verses 11 to 13. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now back in Roman times, there was a bloke called Quintilian. Has anyone ever heard of Quintilian? Yep. Another great name, like Anesiphorus and Hermogenes, for, to give you kids, but there was a bloke called Quintilian. He was a Roman public speaker, or rhetorician, uh, he was from around about the same time as Paul in the first century AD. And he wrote a 12-volume textbook. That's just one of them there up on the screen. He wrote a 12-volume textbook on rhetoric or public speaking. And it was called The Orator's Education. He had a section in his book called Authority, which deals with how to give authority or proof to your speech. In other words, so that your speeches have some sort of authority to them. And he wrote that even common sayings and popular beliefs may be useful. That is, when you're giving an argument. Now, coming back to our saying here, Paul is using this saying, which was a, some, obviously some sort of common saying. We don't know where Paul got this saying from here. You can read lots of commentaries and there's lots of ideas where it comes from. Nobody really knows where he got it from. But it doesn't really matter where he got it from. It was obviously some sort of saying or poem that was well known amongst the Christian community of the time. And quoting this well-known saying gives some backing and some authority to Paul's argument, just like when we quote something today. Now, it's an interesting poem. It's laid out very simply with some very logical connectors. The lines in verses 11 and 12 follow a similar pattern. If we do something, then there will be an expected outcome. So the first one is what we do. If we die with him, if we die with Jesus, then the result is that we will live with Jesus. The second one, if we endure, that is, if we keep going and following and serving Jesus, then the result is that we will reign, that we will rule with him. The third one is that if we disown him, the result is that he will disown us. That all seems quite logical, doesn't it? But there's a plot twist. Do you notice the last verse in verse 13? It's not what you would expect. It says, if we are faithless, what would you expect it to say? Which is? Yes, you expect it to say... If we are faithless, it would expect us, we would expect it to say that he will also be faithless to us because that's the pattern. But it doesn't say that. 
What does it say? He remains, he remains faithful. So it gives emphasis and focus to that because it goes out of the pattern. Jesus always remains true to himself. He cannot disown or reject himself. And so he remains faithful even when we are not. So that's the end of today's section of scripture that we're looking at. But I said I would come back to verse 2 in chapter 2 before I finish up. And that has one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible. As a teacher, I love this one. It says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So there's a chain of teaching that goes on here. Paul was Timothy's mentor, his teacher or discipler and trainer. But he didn't see his mentoring and teaching as stopping with just Timothy. He expected Timothy to find some trustworthy people for him to mentor and teach and train. And those people in turn would then find others to teach and train and so on, right up until our time today. The question is, are we part of this chain too? Or is the teaching just stopping with us? You know, a few of us have a more formal role of teaching and training and mentoring in the church, like what I'm doing right now. People like pastors, elders, preachers, growth group leaders, youth group leaders, Sunday school teachers. But most of us, maybe all of us, maybe we don't have those roles, but many of us do have the opportunity in some way or another to be passing on what we know about the gospel, about following Jesus to other people. And we should be using that opportunity. If you're a parent, for example then you need to pass your faith on to your kids. You are their teacher. You are their trainer. You are their mentor. And many of us, most of us, will have opportunities in our lives to pass on what we know about Jesus to other people. Think about what you know about Jesus. Where did you hear the gospel from? Who taught you to follow Jesus? Possibly it was from a number of people, as it was with me. But it wasn't Paul himself. I guess you could say reading what Paul wrote is partly Paul telling you, but no doubt people told you as well. The apostolic teaching that has been passed on down to us through the generations from reliable people, person to person, has done that through the centuries until it's reached us today. Let us continue that pattern and pass on God's teaching to others who in turn will pass it on again to other people, maybe in generations to come. So let us review today's passage. From a socio-rhetorical point of view, we have seen Paul continue the theme of enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel, the good news. This includes facing dishonour. But it's for a reason. It's for the wonderful reward of preaching the good news so that others can hear and receive salvation in Jesus. We are seeing him use the example of people, both negative ones, Phygelus and Hermogenes, people who deserted him, and also one positive one, Anisiphorus, who was not ashamed of Paul's chains, but on the contrary, actually went out of his way to find Paul 
in Rome. We saw Paul use enthymemes. Can anyone remember what an enthymeme is? Figure it out yourself. Yeah, so I can, I can just imagine all the growth groups throughout the week. By the way, if you're not in a growth group, go and see Cameron and sign up for one. But I can imagine all the growth groups during the week. I go, what was that enthymeme thing again? Anyway, it's an incomplete saying with the examples of the soldier, the athlete and the farmer who in some way had to sacrifice and work hard in order to achieve something better. And then we saw Paul quote what was probably a well-known saying, a saying with that plot twist at the end, which highlights the unchanging faithfulness of Jesus, who is always faithful. So what about for us personally? As we go out in the week, we'll have tomorrow off, maybe, maybe not all of us, but then the rest of the week, as we're out in our workplace, school, uni, whatever you do during the week, what does this passage teach us? Well, again, the main point is that suffering for Jesus is worth it. Sometimes in Australia we might not think this applies to us. Maybe we don't suffer the gospel the same way that people do in other countries. I don't personally know anyone in Australia who's gone to jail because of their faith, although I have heard of a few people who've gone to court and had traumatic court cases, but it's fairly exceptional. Most of us don't face jail or court for following Jesus, although we must always remember our brothers and sisters in other countries who do. However, we can still suffer for following Jesus and feel that shame as people ridicule us. We can suffer financially because we refuse to do cash jobs or other things that are wrong at work. We can refuse to bend or break the rules at work. We can suffer ridicule from workmates because we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And this is not something new. We had a discussion in our growth group last Tuesday about this, how the general culture is becoming more anti-Christian. But as I reflected back upon my time when I used to be in the secular workplace, when I, ever since I first became a Christian in the late 80s and then in the 90s, I was bagged out often at work because I was a Christian. People would play crude jokes on me to try and see what I would do as a reaction. Who's experienced that? And instead of running away from that, because that takes us away from the people who need to hear the gospel, we need to be willing to undergo that shame, that embarrassment. I can remember, and, and many of us have experienced that, we can offer suffer also ostracism from our family and friends from following Jesus, especially if you come from a non-Christian family background. I mean, I've had some pretty bad jibes. Anyone else experience that from family members, friends, because you follow Jesus? And the more we live for Jesus, the more we hang out with non-believers, as we should, because they need to hear the gospel. If we don't hang out with non-believers, they won't hear the gospel. The more we declare our faith to others, the more we will face that ridicule, that put-down, that embarrassment, that shame. And the question is, is it worth it? Paul tells us in chapter 2 verse 9 that the very reason he suffers is because he is being faithful to God. But he also says that it is worth it. Most of us 
have had to give up something to follow Jesus. And Paul mentions some of the sufferings that he had. He mentions that Phygelus and Hermogenes, who probably used to be close friends of Paul, have betrayed him. Who here has been betrayed and hurt by another Christian? Is it just me? Just don't want to say it. Does it hurt when it happens? Does it really sting when it happens? And when it happens, it's tempting to give up. And indeed, some people even turn back from following Jesus when another believer betrays them. Yet, Paul kept going. Paul knew what it was to suffer in order to follow Jesus. He knew what it was to give up things, to sacrifice, even to the point of being thrown in jail like a criminal. Not only is jail uncomfortable, but it is shameful. But Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10, that he is willing to put up with all of this suffering so that other people can hear the good news and be saved. And Paul issues his challenge to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 3, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And the question for us is, are we willing to share in the hardships that come with serving Jesus? It's well worth it though, as Paul reminds us here, and even more so as we progress through this letter in the coming weeks. Before I pray, I'd just like to ask if anybody has any questions. Yes, Jordan. Yep. Oh, yep, sure. Would you about to put the slide back to that thing? I think it's just the next one back. Yes, I will when it comes back. Yep, so if we look at that saying there, Jordan was asking in the second la two last things, it says, if we disown him, he will also disown us, and if we're faithless, he will remain faithful. Is there a difference between disowning and faithful? Is that what you're asking there? Look, I was really hoping that no one would ask that question. <laughs> Because it, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because it looks like disowning and faithful is similar. So why doesn't one doesn't say he will disown us and the next one it says is faithful? I don't know. Don't know. I've thought about that too. I don't know. I think there must be a subtle nuance between the two. So yes, he will disown us. You know, if we're faithful and faithless, if we don't follow Jesus in the next eon, so when Jesus returns and um, those who follow Jesus go to glory... It says quite clearly in the Bible that Jesus will disown those who don't follow him. But I think faithful is something a bit different. I think the last line helps us to understand it. He cannot disown himself. So it remains he is faithful to the extent that he can be faithful. His disowning us is not anything capricious or it's not being unfaithful. I mean, the best example that I can think coming to my mind would be a married couple where one person you know, just leaves and the other person tries to stop that from happening and is faithful as much as they can. But, of course, there's still that disowning. Anyway, that's probably not a very good explanation, but that's the best I can come up with. Any... I'll take one more question before we close in prayer. If there's another question, surely there must be. Yes, Peter. Surely, just going back to that last point about that slide can come back. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. It could be. So Peter's raised the point that this, the second one could be in a generic sense that Paul is faithful to his bride, the church, in a, in a, as the church. Yeah. Yes, Christ is always there. We're the ones who have broken the relationship. Yep. Okay. Good. Thanks. Both questions about the bit I couldn't really give an answer to. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> Makes us think. That's good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word here. We thank you that there's so much for us to learn. Uh, even when there are bits that, like that last question that are a bit hard to figure out, we pray that, that uh, the main message is simple for us to understand. It's just hard to put into practice. We pray that you would help us to be willing to suffer, to follow you, that we would be faithful teachers of your word who can pass it on to our children if we're parents and to other people that we meet. Help us to be people who are willing to suffer shame, embarrassment, being put down, so that we can have the profit of other people knowing you and achieve uh, honour in your sight. We ask for these things in your name. Amen.